0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Okay, in this episode, I promise we are finishing up the dawa of fully feeling. I thought we could do it in the last episode, but not so. Too much to talk about. So we're going to work through chapters 10 through 14 in this episode and then finish it, finish the book. And these chapters are actually kind of short, so I think we'll for sure be able to do that. Chapter 10, he talks about forgiveness and extenuating circumstances, which is where we left off in the last episode. He quotes Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who says, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility you know we were in the men's group a couple of weeks ago when russia invaded ukraine they had invaded on wednesday and we have group on thursday so you know that had happened the day before and we start with check-in and just see where people are at emotionally and obviously people have emotions about that and one of the guys in the group shared you know like hey i was i was reading a little bit about vladimir putin and his childhood story and Here's what I found interesting. And so again, when I read that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow quote, it made me remember that conversation that we had in group and, and that, yeah, the secret history of our enemies, we would find sorrow and suffering. Unfortunately, not enough healing. And then he quotes Jack Cornfield, who says, We have all been harmed, just as we have all at times harmed ourselves and others. Pete Walker says, extenuating circumstances are outside factors beyond the control of individuals that influence and mold their behavior and character. So these things might be wars. They might be uh, natural disasters. They might be economic hardships that, you know, aren't just something that the family, the immediate family is experiencing. They might be things like immigration, which, you know, if you've ever talked to somebody who immigrated themselves or has family who did and they know that story those are pretty traumatic harrowing stories. He says a consideration of our parents extenuating circumstances sometimes awakens feelings of forgiveness although once again we must be careful not to do this as a way of denying or minimizing or giving our parents a pass of our own painful past. Now, I I sometimes will say to clients, like I just the, the more I read about history or study history, I just don't think there's ever been long enough periods of time where we raised a generation without extenuating circumstances. And, you know, honestly, we're still not doing that. I think we've come a long way in our theories and our beliefs and our practices of parenting But the pandemic, COVID-19, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, like all of those things are extenuating circumstances that we know are influencing and molding and shaping, particularly these young kids who, you know, I have clients whose kids were starting kindergarten on Zoom and then went to kindergarten with masks, right? Like, I mean, some people are like, oh my gosh, it's going to ruin them. It's not going to ruin them. Every generation has its things, right? It's going to be something, sure, that molds them, that impacts them. And parents can help them with that. Parents can make that something that they learn from and that they draw positive experiences from, that learning. Or it can be something that they trip over for many years and even decades to come. He says, many of us consider our parents' hardships and misfortunes prematurely in order to bypass or short-circuit our grieving process. This often results in a premature decision to forgive, which in turn leaves us developmentally arrested, still suffering from our childhood deficits. When we dismiss our own pain by elevating our parents' pain above it, we are exchanging our future potential to become more whole and alive human beings for a false, empty notion of forgiveness. And again, I think it's also that repetition compulsion that he talks about where when we elevate our parents' needs above our own, that's what was done to us. That was part of the, the trauma and part of the dysfunction that we grew up with as kids. He says, I believe it is wise to wait until we have attained at least a modicum of self-compassion before we focus too much on our parents' extenuating circumstances. Sympathy for our parents' suffering is usually part of the process of denial if it is not matched with at least some self-compassion. He says most of our parents were in fact victims of terrible childhoods and their most extenuating circumstances are that they too were grossly neglected or seriously abused. He says many of our parents physically abused as children were not allowed to release their pain through crying. Many came to over rely on angering as their only means of releasing emotional pain and no amount of angering or raging, however, can serve the releasing function of tears. In fact, rage in the place of tears only begets more rage for it exacerbates the loneliness and isolation of the perpetrator. There's actually some truth in the sickening expression, this hurts me more than it hurts you, for our parents' abusiveness also injured them. Their mistreatment of us diminished or destroyed our capacity to have authentic, loving feelings for them. He says many of us then are indirectly the victims of social pressures that forced our parents to repress their pain until it accumulated and transmuted into rage. The pain into rage syndrome is rife in our society and is customarily passed down from generation to generation. It has created great gulfs of unwept tears and huge chasms of enmity between the generations. When we think about that, right, that enmity between the generations. I mean, I'm Gen X. we were a smaller generation, so we couldn't quite have the power Of the two generations that were kind of sandwiched between the baby boomers and Millennials because they were just sheer number wise they were a larger generation so being a larger generation they're gonna have more voting power they're gonna have more sway they're gonna have more influence all of that type of stuff but when you listen to baby boomers talk about Millennials there's enmity sometimes it's reversed when you listen to Millennials Talk about baby boomers. Also enmity. And and that's true of Gen X too, I think, you know. So that just made me think about how we create that enmity between generations instead of actually working towards healing intergenerationally. He says, nonetheless, the fact that most parents were poorly parented themselves is a compelling, extenuating circumstance. Many actually did do the best they could given what they knew and where they came from. Many were merely imitating the punitive practices of their own parents. Many were simply following the wisdom of the times, spare the rod and spoil the child. Children should be seen and not heard. He said, with such understanding in mind and with sufficient grieving of our own childhood losses, we can sometimes open our hearts to the common hurt we share with our parents. They too were children once. Children whose self-esteem and confidence were shattered by parental shaming and intimidation. They too had their expressiveness truncated by disinterest and neglect. They too exited childhood with huge caverns of emptiness in their hearts and souls, never having been fed by and filled with the emotional love of another. You know, he talks about kind of getting in touch with that story, if you can, interviewing people in that older generation. Maybe it's aunts and uncles, grandparents, I had a client a couple of years ago who probably spent a good year talking to aunts and uncles and different people on both his mom and dad's side of the family, sometimes you know, made a special trip just to go to that state that they lived in, in order to be able to ask them questions and have that conversation in person and get them to maybe open up and share some things that he didn't know, that he couldn't know himself. And it was actually really healing in his recovery and i remember at the time i mean both of my parents had died at that time and i remember at the time even asking a few of my aunts on my mom's side that are still alive some questions and just hitting a dead end and like i just felt like anytime i asked or tried to like open a conversation i just ran smack dab into a brick wall of denial And I couldn't seem to get around that. I still can't seem to get around that brick wall of denial that exists there. And in my dad's side of the family, I mean, a lot of them have passed away. And I just, I haven't had any contact with any of them in 30 years, right? I don't even, I mean, I think I'm friends on Facebook with one of my cousin's wives and one of my cousin's. On my dad's side and I think that's about it and I don't really have much interaction with that side of the family at all. You know there are pieces sometimes as I study history I can understand oh this was my grandparents time period or this would be my parents time period and, and wonder how that must have shaped them or how that must have influenced them. You know, years ago when I was just kind of reading about women's movement through history and kind of the some of the progress that was made in the early 70s to late 70s into the 80s. So, I mean, that was my time period. I was alive. I was born in 1970. Maybe it started in the late 60s. But reading that, and, you know, they even talked about some books. In that book that I was reading, It was called like When the World Changed. When I was reading that book, they referenced books, right, that female authors were putting out or that was kind of maybe challenging some of the social status that females have. And I remembered a lot of those books being on my mom's nightstand or seeing them, like my mom was a reader, and seeing them. I don't recall her talking about the books. I didn't know necessarily what those books were about until you know, she's passed away. Years later, I'm reading this book. And I was just kind of like, oh, like, I wonder how that impacted my mom. And especially being in a marriage where she was not happy, and there was abuse. And, you know, it occurred to me that she must have felt powerless as a woman to do anything about that. I mean there were things she did she tried within our home right or i mean she definitely fought back with my dad about some things and that didn't work out well for her or us but okay she must have at some point gotten that what we call learned helplessness where she just had become complacent about that or just accepted that this is what it's going to be and it wasn't until you know i'm an adult i'm married and the brother under me is saying to my mom, like, get a divorce. Like, stop this. And she was saying, well, I, I can't do that. while well, I still have two young kids, right? I, I need to stay married for them. And we were like, no. No, you don't. Stop this. Stop. You are not doing them any favors. And I it just kind of occurred to me, like, I don't... Maybe years before that, she had given up trying to hope that it could be any different. And maybe some of that was rooted in her experiences growing up, I think she was born in 46 maybe, growing up as a female during that time period. You know, I also know, you know, my family on my mom's side, so both my maternal grandparents, grand grandpa and grandma, come from pioneer stock, Mormon pioneer stock, right? And I mean, there's a lot of trauma that they experienced crossing the plains and setting up and establishing a new area. There's also plenty of trauma that they did, right? I don't know if that was my ancestors personally, but there was a lot of trauma to Native Americans or other people who were also, you know, crossing the plains, as well as things that were done to them. And they experienced horrible things that, you know, I I can't hardly imagine. And, you know, in both sides of the family, they practiced polygamy in both sides of my maternal grandparents. They practice polygamy, and I can only imagine what that did to some of the women in my lineage line, right? And I think I've mentioned this before, like there was a time period that I went to my grandma's grave, you know, her headstone, her and my grandpa's headstone is right next to my mom's, and I was just kind of there at the cemetery and just kind of had to have that conversation with her and just say, like, I can appreciate what these ancestors did my grandma was part of the, there's an organization here in Utah called the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers. It's a, I don't, I don't know what they do, they share stories, something I think my older sister is a part of it or was a part of it when she lived here. My mom was a part of it, I've never been a part of it. And I could, just kind of had to have that conversation with my grandma saying, I, I can appreciate what they thought, that, what they believed in and the lengths that they went for what they believed and i can't lay those hand carts down where they left them that's not going to work for me it's not going to work for my daughters it's not going to work for my granddaughters or my great granddaughters like i got to pick it up and i got to take it somewhere else now obviously i'm taking it somewhere else like in terms of moving states but i feel like i have taken it somewhere else he talks about as he traced his heritage of abuse and neglect right he he said, I you know, I came to this memory of what still strikes me as the origin of our terrible epidemic of dysfunctional parenting. He says, in a lucid movie-like viewing, I saw with my mind's eye families ravaged in mass by the Industrial Revolution. He says, this destruction is trenchantly depicted in D.H. Lawrence's novel, The Rainbow. And I'm just gonna read from this because I think it's quite compelling what he says. He says, I saw men taken away from holistic lifestyles in which their families worked harmoniously together to provide for all their needs. Now again, I read that and I think, well, I don't know. I mean, I've never lived on a farm, but I've read East of Eden and farm life didn't seem easy. And I'm sure there were families who were not harmoniously working together for the benefit of the family. And they still were prone to natural disasters. This is all my cynicism, I guess, coming out, right? But he says, I saw them placed in sterile, mindless, repetitive jobs in coal mines and factories where they lost their sense of purpose and where the light of their spirits was systematically extinguished. My heart ached as I saw these men driven to perform as faultlessly, emotionlessly as machines. Eventually, they began acting like machines with no social intercourse, no tolerance of mistakes, and no time for anything that was not productive. Years later, While watching a documentary on Henry Ford's factories, I saw that workers there were not allowed to talk or sing or wander more than five feet from their stations on the assembly line. The strongest, youngest, most efficient workers were routinely put at the front of the assembly line. Those who could not keep up were fired, and most men were used up before they reached 40, only to be discarded onto the streets where there were no welfare institutions to support them. Little wonder so many of our forefathers became chronically depressed, embittered, and addicted to alcohol, numbing away their pain. It doesn't take much imagination to visualize them coming home from work, expecting their families to behave in the same uncomplaining, non-interactive way that the factory required of them. Treated like machines, our forefathers in turn treated their children like machines. And machines are only useful when they are operating efficiently. The most valued machines require little attention, rarely broke down, and are economically fueled. Little wonder that children began to be treated mechanistically and that good parenting on the part of the father was reduced to putting food or fuel on the table. Little wonder that the needs of children were often treated as bothersome and annoying as the breakdown of a factory machine. Little wonder that perfectionism invaded the psyches of these children the mechanization of our forefathers produced the prototypes of the modern day absent father and silent armchair daddy. Great is the number of adult children who have never played a game with their father or ever heard a tender word from him. I'm sure that if research was done, we would see a very high correlation between the incidence of family dysfunction and the degree of meaningless and automation in parents' work lives. When people are treated like machines, they become heartless and soulless. They lose touch with the natural human sense of empathy that normally serves to warn them when they are treating others abusively or neglectfully. The epidemic of child abuse and child neglect in this country is denied and tolerated because of this lack of empathy. He goes on to talk about how we're not out of this yet, right? And he talks about how so often televisions or now maybe phones or iPads are being used as babysitters or are being used as parents to entertain their children or to make their children kind of go away or take care of themselves now again sometimes we need to do that as a parent like i'm not saying you should never be doing that like i don't think that in order to be a good parent you have to be entertaining your child 24 7. right as daughter number three got a little bit older i talked about her in the last episode she got a little bit older sometimes I would say to her she would say I'm bored she would first thing in the morning she'd wake up I'd hear her feet come down the stairs she'd come open our bedroom door she was an early riser so this is like three or four in the morning she'd open the door and be like I'm bored and I'm like go to sleep I mean she wouldn't go back to sleep right but I would say to her like being bored is not a bad thing and you get to figure out what to do with yourself In order to entertain yourself, you've got to figure out how to spend that time with yourself because I'm done getting up at three or four in the morning with you. And she was old enough now that she wasn't going to endanger herself or harm herself or anything like that. But he says, you know, there's research that talks about the average adult watches six hours of television a day. It's a lot of mind-numbing time that is maybe spent relaxing or what do we call it? De-stressing or decompressing after work. But is that actually a good way to de-stress just watching television or playing video games? He says the pressures of life in industrialized societies force us to live at a harried pace to keep up with the complex demands of modern living. Many modern families cannot survive without both parents working. And many of these parents are constantly overwhelmed with stress and fatigue. In such conditions parents who truly intend to love and care for their children often unconsciously slip into recreating the abandoning shaming and punishing conditions of their own childhoods many times even when they've sworn to raise their children differently than their parents i was thinking about you know when mark i think it was actually on the podcast that i recorded with mark nepo a couple times ago and he mentioned it also i think at one of his two events when he was here in town and he was talking about marxism and he was talking about like you know again that karl marx probably would not recognize his ideas in the way that they show up in current communist parties or you know the way that communism is is typically used as a form of government but he said you know this was a time period where karl marx was seeing a shift from workers being at home with their families on farms Working, knowing other farmers, kind of helping other farmers out, and moving them into town or into factories where they may not know each other, they may not communicate with each other, similar to what Pete Walker had just described during the Industrial Revolution. And he said, you know, that in Karl Marx's writing, he wrote about how we are creating an alien nation. And by writing that, right, he was kind of the first one who coined that term, alienation that these fathers were going to be alienated from the land, from their community, from their families, from their home, that type of stuff. And I would say that that probably happened. Now, as a woman, I also know that Karl Marx could have cared less about the plight of women, right? He was concerned about the plight of less wealthy males, but like the thought of women's plights did not even cross his mind in his writing. And so while I can appreciate what he wrote, and I can recognize the harm that that did and his valid concerns for what that would do to males. You know, as a female, I also hold that and go, and we're still not talking about women. Still couldn't care less about how this is impacting and shaping women. He quotes Stephen Levine saying, Forgiveness means going into your heart so that you can feel the pain of another and let go of it. He says, often we can look at old family photos and they might give us a felt sense of what was happening. Now, he says, be careful with family photos because often, you know, when families were posing for pictures, they put on the happy face. And so when we look at that, what we see may actually be deceiving to us about what it felt like to live in that family at that time. But he says, you know, you may find family photos where there is evidence on the people's faces or, you know, if there's bruising or different things like that, that are indicative of the problems that they were experiencing. He says, the imaginative reconstruction of our parents' childhood sometimes stimulates us to grieve for their losses. We may experience a very profound healing by letting ourselves cry for them and by allowing ourselves to feel angry about how their parents hurt them. I remember a time when, you know, I was a newish mom. I mean, I think my youngest was maybe, I mean, not my youngest, my oldest, was probably about 10. So my youngest would be about three or four. And I don't remember what prompted it. I remember where I was driving in my car and I remember that I was all alone. And you know, in my family, there are six kids and I'm the second of six. And my siblings, we have had conversations before where we talk about the fact that my mom played favorites. And we even all agree on who were her favorites and where the positioning of everybody was. And I am the least favorite. I'm the sixth favorite, right? I'm second born, but I'm the sixth favorite of six. And my brother who would be, we all kind of put him as fifth favorite, You know, he kind of said to me once, like, I mean, I don't think I'm a whole lot ahead of you, but I'm probably ahead of you in terms of the hierarchy of favorites. One of my brothers was my mom's favorite. And I think a lot of that had to do with the status that he could achieve that would somehow make up for the feelings of self-loathing she had about herself. I'm not sure where those come from. Maybe for sure her marriage, but I don't know where else, right? Right. And so in some ways, his success and his achievements could redeem her, except it doesn't work that way, right? And then I would say the favorite daughter was the one who probably was the most emotionally meshed with her and was the easiest on her and kind of took care of my mom's emotional needs and in, in her own ways made my mom look good and feel good about herself, even if that was maybe based on some false things. And... I don't know what prompted this, right? But I was driving in my car by myself and I was feeling angry about this. And you know, I had four kids and I remember thinking I would never play favorites. They're each different, right? And sure, when they were young, sometimes they'd be like, "Oh, you're their favorite." They're they're yeah, they're your favorite. And I'd be like, "No, you're just in trouble right now and you did something wrong, right?" Now that they're older, I, that conversation doesn't really happened that much. We've had enough conversations and they've kind of looked at that and they just have a different perspective. I don't feel like I played favorites, but this time in my car, I'm driving in my car. You know, I was also told a lot. I remember one of my uncles, one of my favorite uncles. I don't even remember why he was at our house. And, you know, he, he said some things really positive to me throughout my life. He also said some things that were really I don't know that he meant for me to overhear them, but I did overhear them and they were pretty hurtful. Things that he said about my family or about the house we lived in and how small it was. Called it a cracker jack box, that they live in nothing bigger than a cracker jack box. And I remember, I have this memory, I'm getting back to my other story, but I had this memory of I was maybe around, I wanna say 10 or 11 and he came to the house and I don't know why he was there. And I was just, I don't even remember what I did, right? But I remember he kind of looked at me and he said to me, like, Jackie, you are one of the realest people I know. And because I remember at the time thinking, "Real? Like, is this uh, Pinocchio? Of course, I'm a real girl. Like, what are you talking about? Right?" I didn't quite understand what he meant, but he was just like, "People know exactly where they stand with you." Again, I don't know where that conversation came from. I don't really have a memory of. What I did, or if I said anything, or I don't really know. I've never even asked him about it. So I'm driving in the car. Fast forward now, I'm a mom of my own. I'm driving in the car. I'm feeling angst. I'm feeling anger about the fact that my mom played favorites. And why would she do that? Why would she do that to us? Why would she do that so we did that to each other, right? I was just feeling really angry about it. And it was like in a moment, something happened in my brain and these pieces came together. You know, I've also been told that my eyes give away everything that I'm thinking or everything that I'm feeling. And I just thought for a moment, I'm sure my mom over the years, when she looks at me, she sees my disappointment in her reflected back to her. And I can't even imagine how painful that is to look at your daughter And to see this image reflected back of you, that is not good. Like, and just, you know, driving in the car, I just started crying and I thought that must be hard. Again, I wasn't trying to do that. It's not like I was giving her mean looks or trying to communicate with her that I was disappointed in her because that would have been bad. But I just thought that would be heartbreaking to look into your daughter's eyes, especially if she's already feeling helpless about her life circumstances. And then to look at me and see my disappointment in her and maybe even to think, you don't even know. You don't even know, little girl, what it means to be a little girl in this world. People don't care about you. You can graduate college. That doesn't matter. My mom was a college graduate. That didn't matter, right? She was progressive for women her age didn't matter. And so just for that moment, I was able to kind of hold this kind of experience of her seeing me and me feeling what that must feel like as a mom and how heartbreaking that must be for her. Again, doesn't mean it's okay that she treated me as the sixth favorite and as a result, my own kids were treated as the sixth favorite grandchildren, right? One she typically did not have time for. And so I could just kind of hold that for a moment. I remember I cried and just thought like, I I don't want that for my girls. I don't want that for me. And I can feel some empathy. I can feel some compassion for my mom. And maybe like not understanding like, yes, this is okay, but understanding of why I'm six out of six when it comes to favorites. You know, I know in my family, I witnessed more things than my siblings. I also remember more things than my siblings. I had more of a front row chair to some things than my siblings did for various reasons. Like I know what those reasons are. And so I had more information to hold in my body, right? And I'm sure that that was reflected when I would look at her sometimes, or when she would look at me and catch a glimpse of me. I'm sure she saw that from me. And in that moment, it was some understanding for her and some empathy for her. Next, Pete Walker talks about almost kind of breaking the spoken rule. I don't know that it's even unspoken, right? He says, it does not make sense to me that we should only praise God for blessings and then reserve all the blame for life's disappointments for ourselves. He says, I sometimes feel great rage and blame towards God, the apparent all-powerful creator of everything for creating or allowing the development of a system that has turned so many people into callous, deadened machines. He says, ironically, this blaming invariably deepens my gratitude to God, who seemingly forsook us in our childhood years and at the same time created abundant beauty, wonder, and love for us to discover in our adult years. He says, in blaming God, we make the strongest statement possible about our childhood innocence. This is merely an extension of what we do when we anger at parental unfairness and protest our childhood victimization. Healthy blame is our invaluable instinct of refusing to accept shame for problems not of our own making. It is therefore normal and healthy for us to occasionally perceive God as the ultimate dysfunctional parent. And then he says, even Jesus blamed God his Father when he cried out on the cross, Why hast thou forsaken me? He says, We also benefit from blaming God for wider unfairnesses and injustices. He says, It is powerfully restorative to hate and rage at such large scale abuses as war, disease, famine, and poverty. The horror of such tragedies sometimes weigh heavily on our hearts. Grieving is a healthy way of relieving this weight as a compliment to the compassionate tears we sometimes shed for others, we also need to vent our anger at the despicable tragedies that afflict our human family. He then talks about how understanding these extenuating circumstances, wars, famines, different things that people experience and and have to go through as part of, of life, right? He says, sometimes reckoning enables us to see that what was done to us was highly impersonal. This wasn't even about me, right? Where so often we feel it directly is about us and it starts to shape how we see ourselves and the relationship that we have with ourselves. to be able to kind of take a step back and look at what has happened to our parents and what was happening, you know, where they lived and in the world at that time that was shaping them. What were the social structures, all of that type of stuff. He says, we start to see how impersonal, what was once very personal starts to feel. And in that, it can start to alleviate us or shift the relationship that we have with self-shame. He says, what was done to us was often an unintentional manifestation of repetition compulsion. Our parents unconsciously repeated the same abuses as their parents because they were usually in as much denial and defendedness as we were before we began recovery work. He says, most parents who have not been enlightened by a recovery perspective, have little awareness of how neglectful or abusive they were or are. Many of them have never even realized that they themselves were injured by the parenting practices they so ignorantly mimicked. You know, sometimes I see those memes floating around on social media and it might have like a a street light and it's kind of, you can tell it's kind of dark, although it might be a black and white image or sepia toned or something like that. And it'll say, like, hit like if you know what this means. Basically meaning it's time to come home because the streetlights come on, right? Or saying things like, if you were raised in a childhood where you had to play outside by yourself or you got to ride your bike wherever you wanted or whatever, right? I, I'm sure you've seen those as well floating around on the internet. And they'll basically be saying, press like because we had a great childhood. and. I've always been bothered by those memes because it's a way of denying and repressing generational neglect that happened for kids and glorifying it as though this was so great. This was amazing. Instead of understanding how that neglect impacted us and maybe still impacts us to this day. He says, when parents are unable to use their children as models and inspirations to recover their own aliveness, they sometimes kill their children's spiritedness in the same way it was killed in them. I remember we were gonna move into our second home and we had actually been building it and there were some delays in the building. We had sold our other home and so we kind of had a hard deadline to be out of the one home, but we weren't gonna be able to move into the new home. And I might've mentioned this where my, my husband was like, let's just move in with your mom. And I was like, uh, that's not a good idea. It was going to be like, I think it was like a month or two. And my husband was like, it's a month or two. It'll be fine. And I was like, you haven't lived at my house before. Like you've seen things in my house. You should know better than to suggest this. But he was like, no, it's the only thing. It makes sense. It's hard to find a safe place that's month to month. Right. And we don't want to sign a year lease on an apartment or something like that that just doesn't make sense which it didn't and you know i also don't want to overpass the fact that we never even had a conversation about moving in with my husband's family that wasn't even an option and so we moved in it ended up being three months that we lived with my mom and daughter number three was in kindergarten when this happened and You know, there was a lot of things that happened in those three months. It seemed like a year that we lived there. I started like as a kid, I would like pick my hangnails or I would create hangnails on the sides of my fingers by picking my skin. That started back up and I was like, oh, wow, I haven't done this for years. And I was just like, okay, that's it's creating a lot of anxiety just being in this house. You know, my mom, who at the time was divorced and all the kids had moved out, so it was just her in the house that I grew up in. And she would just say like, oh, I miss this busyness, right? That was one way that my mom dealt with or bypassed the emotions that she felt was she was always moving, always going, always doing something and kept her kids moving, doing something like that. And so she was just like, I remember one day it had been a long day with me in the car, picking up kids, taking them to different things, gar- grabbing this kid and came home and I'm making dinner and my mom was like, oh, don't you love that feeling? And I was just like, no, I, like I didn't, I don't think I even said that to her, but I was just like, okay, we are very different and that's a good thing. But during this time period, you know, daughter number three, again, has always had All of my girls have had kind of an independent, fierce streak. But daughter number three just did not shy away from conflict and kind of was almost like a bull in a china shop a little bit. And my mom and her got into conflict a lot during that three months. My mom would get upset about what chair she was sitting in at the dinner table and there would be an argument over what chair she was sitting in. And one day I found myself trying to talk to this daughter and just be like, just give in so that grandma's happy, right? And I, like I said it to her and I caught myself and I was like, what am I doing? This child is in kindergarten. My mom is 60 years older, however old she was at that point. I was like, no. No, it is not the child's responsibility to sit in whatever chair grandma wants her to sit in because who cares? Who cares what chair she sits in at the dinner table, right? Who cares about these things? And I could see it was deteriorating her relationship with my mom. And for probably a year after that, she wouldn't, like when we were leaving, my mom would say to the kids, come give me a hug after we had moved out and everything. My mom would say, come give me a hug. And she just wouldn't. She would be like, nope, I'm not going to. Can you give me a kiss? Nope, not going to. It, it was uncomfortable for me because I think she was feeling often what I felt, but she was doing it very differently than I ever would. And I felt myself wanting to help her like, you don't understand. You need to just let it be this way so that grandma doesn't lose it, Right. But also knowing like, no, I, I can't do that to her. I have to protect her from my mom. And in somehow, maybe I'm reclaiming something in me that was lost back then. It was a very hard three months. And one of the times I remember my mom had taken my daughter. I think I feel like I talked about this in one of these episodes about the dawa Foley Fully Feeling. My mom had taken this daughter up to my grandma's house and was showing my daughter about the aloe vera plant that my grandma had, kind of teaching her about it. My mom was a school teacher, like, oh yeah, and you squeeze it, this and that. I'm pretty sure I I've shared this story. So I'll I'll kind of skim over it. And long story short, my mom goes in the other room with my grandma and my daughter proceeds to break off all of the pieces of the aloe vera plant, right? And my mom comes home, she's really upset. Jackie, she is going to be a juvenile delinquent. And I was kind of like, mom, she's not going to be a juvenile delinquent. And my mom was like, she destroyed property. And I'm like, it's an aloe vera plant that you literally had just told her you couldn't kill by breaking things off of, that it would just grow back organically on its own. I didn't say it in that tone to her or probably even that firmly to her. But again, I was also like, okay, This is my child who's doing things differently. People tell me she's like me. You're responding in many ways that I'm remembering. And again, just having some compassion for myself about why I had to repress those things, about why I had fears instead of confidence, and why things went differently for my younger self than for this particular daughter. Now, he talks about that there are limits of forgiveness. He says extenuating circumstances are not related to forgiveness in an all or none way. He says some parents' extenuating circumstances are more compelling than others. Some survived very difficult childhoods and made monumental leaps in decreasing their family legacies of abuse and neglect. Others with significantly less childhood trauma of their own devolved into even deeper extremes of poor parenting. Still, others may have parented so unconscionably that forgiveness is not an option, no matter how dramatic their extenuating circumstances. So I think, again, it's just a good reminder to read through what he talks about in terms of forgiveness with parents. And sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not. And sometimes we think we've forgiven them and then more memories come or more emotions come. And it's a process. And some parents we might get to a place of forgiveness and it may not look like what we were hoping for in terms of having a conversation with them. I remember a conversation that I had with my brother uh, several years ago about my dad. And I was talking to my brother about, we were just having a, a brief conversation about my dad. I would say that this brother experienced probably the most physical and verbal abuse from both of my parents But I also don't believe that this brother recalls very much of that. I think it is significantly repressed. We were talking about, you know, dad. And I said to him, like, look, because he was like, I mean, sure, dad's an asshole. But like a lot of dads are assholes. And I said, look, I'm in a field where I can actually diagnose people. An asshole is not a diagnosis. There are diagnoses that I have come to accept maybe fit our dad. But asshole is not a diagnosis. It's not a mental health diagnosis, right? And he didn't ask me, well, what do you think? What do you think that the diagnosis is that fits dad? And he didn't ask me because he doesn't want to know that, right? And he just was minimizing the abuse. You know, I was kind of upset after that conversation. My husband and I went on the a walk with the dogs and my husband asked like well what what do you feel like it is right and it was a little bit hard for me to verbalize it because of this conversation with my brother even though internally I knew what I had thought so fast forward you know several years later I'm at lunch with my brother he's experiencing some issues with his oldest and that are teenagers right and just saying to me like I think looking back I feel like I might've been too hard on dad. And I I'm like sitting across the table from him. Like, I cannot believe you're saying this to me. And he said, you know, as I am a father and I have teens, I feel like my teens are being unfair to me. And now that I'm looking back, I probably was way more unfair to dad than he deserved. And I said, okay, wait a minute you want to go down memory lane with me for a minute? And I pointed out like two or three memories, right? I ended by saying the fact that you're hurt about this, the fact that you're wrestling with this issue right now with your kids, not with my dad, right? The fact that you're wrestling with this issue right now is more than our dad did. Our dad didn't care if he was a good parent. I don't know. Like my brother had said, one of my guiding life principles has been to be a good father. Right. And I said, our dad did not have a guiding life principle about fatherhood or about us as kids. Like the fact that you're feeling these feelings about it to me says you've done way more than our dad did. And he just kind of ended that conversation. Again, I, I don't know that he can hold on to memories when I give them to him because he's in that place of denial. But I also was talking with my husband afterwards and I said, this is why denial can be dangerous. Because we can repeat. Like, not that he's my dad in no way. I think he's a much better father than my dad ever was. But him not wrestling with what our childhood meant. I think in that lunch he said to me, like, I mean, I know our childhood wasn't perfect, but it's not like we need therapy over it. And I, what I didn't say to him is, or... One of us like literally made a whole career out of it, out of therapy, right? I didn't say that to him. But I often reflect back on, you know, I mean, my dad's funeral, I've talked about that before in previous episodes and what a surreal experience that was and a summation of his life that probably was accurate, but like not like any funeral I'd ever been to before or really even since. And I remember, you know, being out at the, graveside where they had carried the casket and all that type of stuff and just noticing like the headstone just to the side of my dad's where where my dad's would be he didn't have a headstone at that point point. and I could only see the back of it right so I didn't see the name on the front or anything like that but on the back of the headstone it said we loved you more than you loved us and I thought I don't even know how I feel about putting that on a headstone right it's probably true, and I could say the same thing for who's going to be his neighbor here in the cemetery. And also feeling to myself like, I don't I don't know if that's how I would get the last word. I don't know if that's how I would end things, right? Or end my relationship in life with them. I still don't know. I still don't have answers about that. He talks about that, As we work on blaming and as we work on moving into some forgiveness or having some empathy for our parents' circumstances, it's also important that we are seeking forgiveness for our own dysfunctional parenting. He says, My heart goes out to those survivors who discover after the fact that they parented their own children in the same detrimental ways that they themselves were parented. These survivors display exceptional courage in choosing the path of recovery. They face the difficult dilemma of working through the grief of their own childhood trauma while knowing they have contributed to similar hurt in their children. Recovery rooms are full of these parents who feel the same horror as they work through and their own recovery and, and put together their own recovery. The good news is, you know, that often amends can be made And he gives, he outlines a six-step process that's designed to help survivors make amends with their own children so that genuine forgiveness may arise between them. And some things can be restored in that relationship to each person in that relationship. Um, He says, we can also adapt these steps to seek forgiveness of anybody that we've hurt. He outlines six steps, which I think is totally worth looking into. You know, he says now a variety of obstacles may affect this process. He says, one is sometimes adult children don't want to hear that their parents were harmful to them. You know, this is in some ways my brother. Like he says, they may simply be unprepared and unwilling to hear that there was anything wrong in their childhoods. I think a lot of my siblings are in varying degrees of that place. You know, we, we get together as a family and commemorate the day that my mom passed away, which is December 30th, and we have a family party and we do some things and then we talk about my mom. And it's always a strange experience for me, yes, but also for my kids who I think my kids are the real truth tellers or the litmus test on truth because they will speak it more freely and without filters than I do. So usually sometimes on the drive home, if if we drove together, sometimes when we're at home, if they drove separately, they will talk about the denial that they Here in that conversation and how much our family, my siblings, want to believe that our childhood was fine, particularly now that our parents are deceased. But my kids know, first of all, I mean, they knew my mom, right? They were, my sister, her kids were older than my kids, her two kids, but much of their young years, they lived out of state. And so my kids lived in state and probably had more time spent with grandma than any other grandkids just because of their age and me being the second of six. And my kids also asked me questions, right, as we were growing up. They experienced, they knew that the way my mom was with them was different than she was with some of my siblings' kids. And they would ask me about that. And they had questions about my dad, you know, and... And I would give them age-appropriate answers to their questions. What I didn't realize is that after my mom passed away, my brother, who would be the fifth favorite out of six, he and his family were living in South Carolina at the time that my mom passed away. And so they, you know, flew home for the funeral and all of that type of stuff and stayed at my house during that week. And it actually prompted them moving back into Utah, which is a different story. But... You know, during that time, that week or week and a half, maybe, you know, I wasn't sleeping. My brother wasn't sleeping much. We stayed up most nights talking. And, you know, the two of us have been to therapy. I think probably because of our ranking and favorites, maybe we've done more work around our childhood than some of my other siblings. And we just talked pretty openly and pretty frankly about memories and about how our parents shaped us. And we talked about some good things and good memories, but we also talked about some of the negative ways that our parents molded us and shaped us. And it was after he had left and you know, life was trying to go back to some type of routine or normalcy, which it tries to do after death. And my kids were talking to me one day and my two oldest said, hey, mom, we got to tell you something. I was like, okay. And they were like, well when your brother was staying here and you guys would stay up late every night and talk they were like we were around the corner sitting on the stairs and we would listen to the whole thing and it took my breath away a little bit because if my kids if i knew my kids were sitting there i would have talked differently i would have filtered things if i knew that and it was after the fact. And I haven't done that. And I think they could see by the look on my face that I was a little bit horrified when they told me that. And my second daughter got a little emotional. And she was like, it wasn't necessarily new information, but hearing the two of you talk about it, she was like, it just made me so sad. And she was emotional my oldest was emotional and they were just like I'm so sorry mom I'm so sorry and you know it was kind of a tender moment they both kind of gave me a hug I was still a little bit like uh what all did we talk about what did they what exactly did they hear and you know I mean I was like every night you guys stayed up every night and they were like yeah yeah we would They were both teenagers, young teenagers at the time, well, 16 and 14 or something like that. And, you know, slowly we would talk about some of those or they would have questions for me. And, you know, eventually they kind of, in one of these conversations, they both said, like, Mom, we wanted to know that story. Like, we chose to sit up and listen. And yeah, it was hard. And they were like, we were super quiet so that you guys wouldn't know that we were there. And it was hard to hear you talk about those things. But they were like, we wanted to know. We wanted to know. And I was like, okay, okay, right? Like that. I had to accept some things there. And, you know, I had had conversations with them before about my childhood and my family. And, you know, we had a conversation after my dad had passed away, which was earlier than this, where I talked to them about some awareness that I was having about how my dad's parenting impacted me And how I saw that that was showing up for them. And I gave them the opportunity one-on-one to each talk to me about how they felt my dad's story through me in their life. And they took that opportunity and talked to me about it. And I was open to hearing some some of the things I maybe couldn't protect them from that were still there for me, that were still showing up, that I was still working on, that I was still healing, but they could still feel the presence of them. He quotes Alice Miller on this topic and who says, Probably I too would have remained trapped by this compulsion to protect the parents had I not come into contact with the child within me who appeared late in my life, wanting to tell me her secret. Now I was standing at an open door, but I could not close the door and leave the child alone until my death. I made a decision that was to change my life profoundly to put my trust in this nearly autistic being who had survived the isolation of decades. I think sometimes these conversations are difficult. Don't get me wrong. They're very difficult when we are having conversations with our kids about our childhood. And in turn, we're also having conversations about their childhood and we are seeking forgiveness for our own poor parenting or for the mistakes that have impacted our children. I've said before there are many things that i would do on behalf of my children that i don't know that i would have done that on behalf of myself and that's helped me understand more of the inner child work that has needed to be done at various points in my own recovery he says no one ever perfects reparenting and i think no one ever perfects parenting whether we're reparenting that inner child or we're parenting our own kids We're just not gonna be perfect, right? We're not gonna be machines that meet every aspect of our children's needs. So I think we have to come to some acceptance about our own imperfections, about our own story, and we have to work to a place where we are not in shame, where we've gotten enough forgiveness from the self so that we can reparent and reconnect with that inner child, understand her story or his story, And understand how that has shaped us if we're parents or how that has shaped us as friends or how that has shaped us as partners in the relationships that we have sometimes we do the exact opposite right if my parent does this I go to the other extreme which also wasn't healthy and also had an impact on my kids and I have to readjust and find more of a balance in the middle that works for my kids and that works for me instead of just being a reaction to my parent that puts me on the other side of where they were i think we also have to recognize he talks about you know in the one of the last chapters he talks about our current relationships with partners and he talks about how he believes many relationships and many healthy relationships right relationships that have potential how many of them end prematurely because neither person knows how to navigate conversations when these childhood triggers come up. And he gives a great example of what that might look like if something gets triggered and maybe we snap at our partner, maybe we say something from that triggered place and then we kind of recognize what's happening, how we come back, how we have a different conversation with them, how we acknowledge that they also have their own story that they brought into this. and. What did my reaction trigger in you and can they have that conversation and can I listen with empathy and compassion for their story and can we navigate our backstories in a way that actually creates healing in our relationship instead of fear or shame or criticism and then ending what could be a healthy relationship and we end that prematurely because we just we don't know that it can be healthy or we don't know that these things can be navigated. He says, we are immeasurably enriched when we have an intimate who is willing to mutually explore and work through reemerging childhood pain with this perspective. Our recovery is greatly enhanced by the non-abusive venting of the old anger and tears that we uncover in free association about a hurt that has arisen between us. And then he talks about authentically forgiving one's parents. Well, he quotes Jack Kornfield saying, if you let yourself feel the pain you carry, it will come as a release to your heart. You will see that forgiveness is fundamentally for your own sake, a way to carry the pain of the past no longer. And again, that's not an all or nothing thing. It's not like we lay that down and it's never to be picked up again. He says, the more parents cultivate fully feeling as a pathway for returning to love. He talks about, you know, as we become more fully feeling, we also become more able to feel forgiving, forgiving for ourselves, forgiving for other people. And he says the same thing is true about love. Although we cannot always feel loving, we can always return to love. So again, these things might get triggered. We may not be in that place of forgiveness, but we can return to a place of letting it go once we've worked through it. And the same is true with returning to love. I can operate from a place of love. He says, with sufficient practice, grieving consistently moves us through disappointment and alienation back into love. Over time, this allows us to identify with love as our most essential characteristics and to be fair and kind to our intimates, even when we feel otherwise. So we can then set boundaries that we live within. Even when we're triggered, we don't act out in ways that are damaging to the people we love. He quotes Gay Hendricks, who says the act of loving ourselves, though, seems outside of time and space so that it is available to us no matter what space we are in. In other words, it is just as possible to love yourself when you are stuck as it is to love yourself when you are free. At either end of the spectrum, loving ourselves seems like the only choice we have. He says thus, while we might not be able to choose our emotions, we have a great deal of choice about how we respond to them and from them. He says, as we become more fully feeling, then forgiveness becomes something we value and we expect to re-experience that. We do not, however, confuse our belief in its value with the belief that we can simply experience it whenever we so desire. And then he talks about, he says, like most transpersonal psychotherapists, I believe love is the home we live in before incarnation and the home we return to when we die. This for me is one of the deepest meanings of the adage, God is love. I also believe that the more we recover our emotional natures, the more we are able to revisit this home throughout our lives. Remember, you know, when I was a teenager, YouTube was very popular. My husband loved YouTube. I loved YouTube. Then my husband went through this phase where he didn't like YouTube. And I was like, who is this person? What happened to my husband? And, you know, just a couple months ago, I realized that he likes YouTube again. So there were some lyrics to their song, Love Rescue Me, when he talks about that part of love that we return home to, that it's the home that we start in and it's the home that we have to live in and that we will return to. And I think I was in early college years when really, so living on my own for the first time, being outside of my childhood home for the first time and really grasping, having these lyrics hit me in a way that I knew I needed to work towards. The lyrics say, love, rescue me, come forth and speak to me, raise me up and don't let me fall. No man is my enemy, my own hands imprison me, love, rescue me. Many strangers have I met on the road to my regret, many lost who seek to find themselves in me. They ask me to reveal the very thoughts they would conceal, love, rescue me. And the sun in the sky makes a shadow of you and I. Stretching out as the sun sinks in the sea. I'm here without a name, in the palace of my shame. Said love, rescue me. In the cold mirror of a glass, I see my reflection pass. See the dark shades of what I used to be. See the purple of her eyes, the scarlet of my lies. Love, rescue me. Yea, though I walk in the valley of shadow, yea, I will fear no evil. I have cursed thy rotten staff. They no longer comfort me. Love, rescue me. And then he says, you know, he repeats that part. I'm here without a name in the palace of my shame. I said, love, rescue me. I've conquered my past. The future is here at last. I stand at the entrance to a new world I can see. The ruins to the right of me will soon have lost sight of me. Love, rescue me. And I remember you know, listening to that song and then like, I got to find the lyrics. Fortunately, I think they had the lyrics printed on the little paper thing in the cassette tape and reading that and kind of seeing myself, almost seeing it like in a timeline where I wasn't standing at an entrance to something new. I wanted to, and it kind of gave me this place to work towards. I definitely resonated with like, I'm here without a name in the palace of my shame. And saying, love, rescue me, right? For so many years of my younger life, I I avoided dating. I avoided relationships where love might be a part of that. You know, I mean, that's kind of how my relationship with my husband started. And he would say, like, I I was interested in dating from the get-go, but I knew if I let you know that, you would cut that off. And that's true. I I would have. And I didn't want kids and I just kind of saw my life going forward with just me, like no marriage, no kids. I liked kids and I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, work in UNICEF or something like that, right? I could, I could work for the Peace Corps and do something with kids, right? And that was kind of the map I had of my life from maybe, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, and, you know, I might like a boy and he might like me. But once I knew he was like really liking me, done, we're over. And so, you know, here I was in college understanding this. I had met some friends while well, I was living with two of my girlfriends from high school. And that was fine. And we had met two guy friends that were just friends. They were on the football team at the college that we went to. And I had a class with them actually, they sat behind me and I, again, I just didn't really, I wasn't approachable and yet they kind of approached me and I was like, mm, what are you doing? Right? Like, what are you doing? And and as we got to kind of know them, and again, I think it was helpful for me that my two friends that I trusted also were getting to know them. So it wasn't just like coming at me directly because I couldn't handle that. and you know, they, they would start to say like, you're so stern and businesslike. That's what they referred to me as. You're so stern and businesslike. And I, I mean, I would kind of be like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's crazy. But I think I did know what they were talking about, right? I was walled off. I was more formal. I didn't really talk with ease or I wasn't at home in who I was. And so I kind of had this facade that, like, I mean, I could be friendly with them. Obviously, they showed up at my house one day to get to know me and my roommates, but that you didn't get really past that place, right? My husband said the same thing when we had started dating and then he was gonna leave on an LDS mission for two years. And he was like, I'm afraid that because I finally got behind these walls that I actually only made it for the next guy and I'm gonna be gone. And I was kind of like, oh, you don't understand how my walls work. That's not how that works. But just kind of recognizing for myself that I needed to move to that place of love. And I remember when my first baby was born, I had no idea that I could experience that kind of love. Again, I wasn't planning on having kids, right? And I instantly, like, sleep deprived, that's okay. I'm gonna take care of this kid, right? And I remember being pregnant with my second and knowing it was a girl and being afraid that I would not love her as much as I love this one. I knew how much I loved number one, right? And I didn't know if I could love number two. Now, if you listen to the podcast, you know, I have four daughters, right? Because I was even thinking, well, if it was a boy, then maybe they're different enough. I can love them each differently, right? Well, I have four girls. They're different. They're not the same but it was my own insecurity in love. It was my insecurity. I didn't know that I was a loving person. I didn't know the depth of that love. And I had no idea how to receive love. And so that song for me became, it became kind of like a map, a roadmap of where I was headed. And it became like a spiritual, I mean, they do kind of, if you know the song, if you listen to the song, it kind of sounds like an old time, like gospel song kind of thing, right? So it's almost like a spiritual thing, but it was for me, it literally was a very spiritual moving thing. And it became an important part of my own recovery. As I looked at how love could possibly rescue me. He says, love is the one absolute that can transcend the apparent duality, paradox, and ambivalence of all human experience. Love, when we are graced enough to experience it, in its deepest spiritual and emotional manifestation, expands our awareness to perceive the essential unity and perfection of all things. I was talking with my therapist a couple weeks ago and we had been working on some issues with my mom and you know, she was asking me about what I've done different than my mom and I was like, oh, everything I could possibly think of. And there's a few things that I appreciate about my mom that I tried to incorporate into my relationship with my daughter's And as a mom myself, but we were also talking at, you know, I shared with her again, when my oldest was leaving for college, when she was moving out for college, I had this fear that I would kind of like, like out of sight, out of mind, right. That somehow I would forget, or I would forget to call her. I would forget to check in with her and like months would go by. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, I've got this daughter. It was a totally irrational fear. It didn't happen. And of course, it wasn't going to happen. But again, it was just that having to readjust our family life and understand that I had the love within me that I needed to adapt to this. And as I was sharing with her, she knows that we have my daughter's friend living with us currently. And, and you know, she was asking me what that was like to like move beyond just the kids that I had birthed, right? And have another person be part of our family. And I was just sharing. I said, well, she's not like the first one who has lived with us, actually. And I was just like, I've come a long way. I've come a long way in trusting myself and in knowing myself and the love that I have. And I think a lot of that had to do with reconnecting with that inner child. No doubt there's still work to do with her and I. But I've done enough of it to know that when it comes up, when she comes up, when I need to be aware of something that I'm not currently aware of, that it's going to bring healing and joy to her. And it's going to bring healing and joy to myself. And so I, I welcome those opportunities for her and I to continue on this journey. And, you know, in, in many ways, I feel like I'm reconnecting with this other half of myself that got lost that got lost in all of the things that happened and somehow this adult self kind of squeaked out and has figured some things out. But I feel like in the last, I would say maybe two or three years, the joining of her and I together and choosing each other to be the other half of the self has risen to a new level. And I'm really grateful for that. And I feel more at home, and more at ease within myself. So wherever you are in your journey from moving from blame to forgiveness, back into love, and back into acceptance, I just want to say as we've read this book, I've appreciated the conversations that um, people have brought to me who are also reading the book, who are also having their own experiences with it, I'm having my experiences with it. And again, for me, this is one of the, I think the privileges of being a therapist is walking, you know, through the valley of the shadow with many clients and coming out with love. And so wherever you are, my suggestion as it is to myself is to keep walking and to keep moving through this process of healing.